Support for Filmmaker Toolkit comes from HBO Documentary Films, presenting All That Breathes. In one of the world's most populated cities, two brothers, Nadim and Saad, devote their lives to the quixotic effort of protecting the black kite, a majestic bird of prey essential to the ecosystem of New Delhi that has been falling from the sky at alarming rates. Amid environmental toxicity and social unrest, the Kite Brothers spend day and night caring for the creatures in their makeshift avian basement hospital. Director Shanak Sen explores the connection between the Kites and the Muslim Brothers who help them return to the skies, offering a mesmerizing chronicle of interspecies coexistence. All That Breathes is the first film to ever win top documentary prize at all three of the Sundance, Cannes, and London Film Festivals for your Academy Award consideration, Best Documentary Feature. Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, Features Writer for Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. Today's guest is a special one for me, not only because I loved his movie, but because I've been listening to him and reading him and watching him for around 25 years now, and I've learned more about film from him than just about anyone else. I'm talking about Elvis Mitchell, who, in addition to being a great critic and historian and interviewer, is now a world-class filmmaker. His new Netflix documentary, Is That Black Enough For You?, is an exhilarating and eye-opening look at the films of the 70s, interwoven with Mitchell's own memories and experiences, the best thing of its type since Martin Scorsese's personal journey through American movies. I'm really thrilled to have him here on the podcast. Welcome, Elvis. Is this where you throw the first shovel full of dirt on my grave? I've <laughs> never been to play that before in my life. <laughs> Wow. Thank you so much for that, Jim. I have literally nothing left to say. Drive safely, everybody, listening in your cars. <laughs> this is just thrilling. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, Thank you for that. Well, I have to tell you, you know, the movie is terrific. And I guess the obvious first question is why this had to be a film. Why not a series of articles or a book or a podcast or, you know, any number of the other modes of expression you've worked in? Because nobody wanted it. It was turned down by every publisher. I have to say it's kind of an exaggeration. They actually turned it down twice in some cases. But, yeah, nobody wanted to publish it. It seemed to me like it would be a natural to go on the bookshelf next to, I don't know, Pictures of the Revolution and Easy Riders Raging Bulls, which, by the way, that book has no mention of black people in it. So I was like, in fact, I remember having this conversation with a friend who had an early copy of the book and was telling me about it. I went, oh, this should be really interesting because maybe you can talk. Oh, oh, no, there's no black people in that book. Because they didn't lend themselves to that narrative of bad boys, of course, because, you know, Jim Brown wasn't a bad boy. Anyway, so they just felt to me clearly a, a paucity or a certain kind of thinking about black cinema of that era. And I thought this is not only about the some esoterica, but it's also about things that were immensely popular that changed the way movies were marked. I just thought in the phenomenological terms, it was a slam dunk. It was just a slam. No, thank you. We don't want your little book. Uh, so I tried a couple of iterations at one point, and I've mentioned this before. I was at dinner with Toni Morrison telling her about it. She goes, I'll write the introduction. And I'm not exaggerating when I swear to you. I turned to see who walked in behind <laughs> me because it couldn't have been me. And then she started talking about her feelings about Pam Greer and the way Pam Greer had been effectively marginalized by being treated like this, this archetype. And if anybody could talk about what film does to people – and their perception is the woman who wrote The Bluest Eye. So she's talking, I'm not exaggerating here again either. I was just going over the tables and grabbing napkins so I could write some of this stuff down in case I don't know what. Um, but I ended up not being able to sell it with her. And so I would mention it to people from time to time. And Steve McQueen said to me, 
that's not a book. And I was thinking, of course, you're right. Nobody wants to buy it, so it's not a book. He said, no, it's a documentary. And that, and that was the sort of like tap on the side of the beaker. And then I'd done an event with a Q&A event with Steven Soderbergh. And we were just talking after having sort of a wind-down dinner. And he just says to me, because as you mentioned, I sort of maybe jumped around from place to place. What do you do with your career anyway? And again, I just said, well, I think it's sweet that you think I have a career. <laughs> but this is one project I've been trying to get off the ground in one way or another for almost 20 years. And he heard, so that's, that's an interesting idea. And usually that's where people kind of go, so how you been? And just to change the subject, and he said, I can cash flow that for you. And I just said, great. I don't know what that means. You know, I can finance it, but what we should probably do so you're not going broke while we're doing this, because otherwise you'd be waiting for the sale, let's go set it up somewhere so you can get paid. And went to a couple of places, one of which, because this is in the before times, after the pitch turned to him and said, so when are you going to have time to direct this? And he says, why do you think I would do this? Well, he's sitting right here. He said, well, do you mind if I talk to Fincher about this? You know David. Yeah, I know David. So David says, oh, I know why you couldn't get this set up, because this is about a bunch of black people. Let's go make it. And it's as simple as that, is having that kind of vote of confidence from people with that kind of stature that changed people's minds about it. It was, for me, the equivalent of walking into the New York Times for the first time. Thinking, I'm doing exactly the same thing I've done before I walked in, but this virtue of the place changes the way I'm perceived. I hadn't made the film before, but this project's perception changed immediately the moment these two guys came on board. And what did you find translated to filmmaking from your time as a critic and historian and interviewer? What, what skill sets or information carried over and what was different about the experience? Well, when I teach film, I always say there used to be two reasons to go to film school, to see films and have access to films and to have access to equipment. So I had one of those things going for me. I'd seen lots and lots and lots of movies and asked myself questions about those. And this gets into something that people have asked me before about why I use my grandmother in the film as kind of the bookend. And because just by being having a an astonishingly earthbound and common sense approach to life. She taught me to ask the questions that weren't being asked, to look for what wasn't there and to wonder why it wasn't, and to decide what to do from there. And and that became, really informed me about not only uh, a purview about art, but uh, how to make this movie, which is to say, what wasn't there? What should be here? What are the things that weren't said before? And, and that really informed the way I did. But then having access to those tools that I'd never used before to sit down with an editor. And the great thing about going to work with a production company is you realize you're surrounded by people who want to do what you want to do. They want to make a movie that can be as good as possible. I mean, there may be differences of opinion, but nobody's trying to subvert what I'm doing. Everybody was on my side to help me to do this. And, and so that made things enormously pleasurable. And just learning what adding um, a piece of instrumentation can do, or complete silence, or a fade rather than a crosscut, or to do a diptych. It just having possibilities open to me, it felt like I was actually seeing movies for the first time. Well, I can, you know, I can sense the enthusiasm you had for this process, and it translates in the movie. I mean, one of the things I loved about this movie is the sense of exuberance. You know, it, it reignited my enthusiasm for the movies that I had seen 
and ignited it for the ones I hadn't. Which, had, which hadn't you seen? I'm curious. Can you remember? Oh, gosh. Uh, the Billy D. Williams one. Is it Hit? What's the? Oh, Hit. Yeah, Hit. Just Hit. Okay. Yeah, like that I've never seen. I'm dying to see that. You know, that was one that came up that I had never heard of uh, and was really interested in seeing. And I'd heard of Claudine, but I've never seen it. Gosh, okay. You know, which I know now I think Criterion or somebody has put out, so I've got to catch up with it. But then, um, you know, but then and then the stuff that I already loved – uh, like Lady Sings the Blues or Shaft or whatever, it made me look at those movies in a different way and made me – and especially, you know, the, the stuff with Poitier is fantastic. I mean, I love the way you trace Poitier's career because I think in the sort of common wisdom, I, I think it stops almost at 1968 or 69. I think people think of Sidney Poitier, they think of who he was up to and including Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And I love how you explore this whole other period, how he was able to adapt with the times because I remember as a kid – on TV, stuff like Uptown Saturday Night and Let's Do It Again, those were hugely, hugely popular movies, and they're kind of forgotten now. They are, and and it's his realization, or not his not realization, but his recognition that he always had the black audience who were always willing to vote with their dollars on him and to do something he hadn't done before, which is all those movies he made in the 70s that he directed are all films in which he's in black community, even when he goes to London and Warm Descendants. December, he's surrounded by other people of color. And you can feel this sense of possibility being opened in him. You can see the gleam in his eye in a warm December. And you can see the excitement, his excitement about being on screen with Harry Belafonte as equals in Buck and the Preacher. And you can feel him playing with his image and having fun and making fun of himself without sending himself up in Uptown Saturday Night. You can see, you can follow this trajectory, this incredible case of, and I think there's no other career like his in film history, where he has to struggle to find a place for himself because there's no place for him to finally being recognized as an actor of value, to sacrificing himself for these white actors again and again and again, to then becoming a movie star by natural right, but also because of the advent of television, as, as Mark Harris mentions in Pictures of Revolution. And by 1968, he's the biggest box office draw in the world. That never happened before. And two years later, just because of politics, he's completely irrelevant. He's made fun of in the pages of the New York Times for not being cool enough. What does that do to you? And rather than give up, he understood who and what he was. He understood what black audiences wanted. And he did this thing that I think this era is about, which is to say, if you offer people something that movies have in this country have always been about, which is to say a kind of heroism, people will respond to that. And so he's the hapless hero in Uptown Saturday Night, but he's still heroic. I mean, he still has a goal. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's Socratic in some weird ways. Certainly brings Aristotle to mind the simplicity of these things, but that's that's evident. And he becomes a part of the fabric of this period sort of saying, American movies, unlike films on other cultures, have always offered this. They've always been built on this, how best I put this, this myth of heroism. And and he understood that by, by playing around with that, but still offering that, that audiences would respond to him. And sure enough, Uptown Saturday Night ends up being, he told me, one of the biggest hits in terms of investment on the dollar, maybe the biggest hit that first artist ever made. And that's the company that he was a part of with Paul Newman and Steve McQueen and Barbara Streisand. Well, that idea of heroism is one of the interesting things about the movie, too, because I love how this sort of ties in with the Easy Riders Raging Bulls thing is how 
you know, the way you show that white heroes in the 70s were kind of becoming these anguished, tormented, you know, Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, the godfather, these kind of inward looking, uh, tormented guys. And the black movies were filling the void. They were giving everybody the heroes, the, you know, they were the people you wanted to be when you watch these movies. You want to be Jim Brown or you want to be Richard Roundtree. You don't really want to be Dustin Hoffman or, uh, you, you know, you don't want to be Al Pacino in Dog Day Afternoon. No, it's it's, it's funny you say that because it, it... Even in, in this respect, Jim, that um, a lot of these antiheroes were played as if they were heroes. You know, you think about what Mac, uh, Max Julian does in the Mac and and the protests of that era, which basically came from people, a lot of whom didn't see these movies, was talk about these movies glamorizing these characters. In fact, we have one of the clips from some man in, who was part of a public group in Fort Worth, Texas, where I once worked, so I know what that community is like. And he's saying, we need to establish some kind of censorship board here to cut these movies. And as he's talking, it's clear he hasn't seen the movie. In fact, the reporter who's doing the pieces says, Superfly, street slang for cocaine. No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, it, it's so built on misinformation that you, you can't help but laugh as you're watching it. But it was incredibly serious. But if you saw Superfly, if you saw the Mac, if you saw Willie Dynamite, I mean, at the end of the Mac, he walks out, he rides a bus as he enters on the bus and he leaves on the bus. He leaves with his tail between his legs. And Willie Dynamite, he literally tosses off his rabbit fur coat and, and walks in another direction. And the joke that Roscoe Orman made is he'd turn his corner and the next thing you know, he was on Sesame Street playing Gordon. But these characters were played with this astonishing bravado and, and the actors who were incredibly charismatic, who should have been stars anyway, stepped up. And and, and, and and as you say, fill the void that American movies have always been about. I mean, until that point, the hero that you saw in mainstream movies was James Bond. And even he was being offered up in what was, in effect, a kind of black action film surrounded by people who actually took themselves seriously as actors in the way that Roger Moore did not. So you felt a sense of jeopardy for him in a way you didn't really feel for James Bond before. You know, that sense of exuberance I was talking about that you feel coming out of the filmmaking and that the movie inspires in the audience. Do you think that's something that's just kind of comes naturally? Is that just intuitive because you are exuberant about these movies? Or are there sort of strategies in terms of the way you're writing and editing this to create that enthusiasm in the audience? I'm really glad you brought that up because really nobody mentions it. And I feel like it's my strength as a critic. I, I want to communicate excitement. And there may be judgments in that excitement. I'm, for example, I'm probably the only English-speaking person quoted on the box for Pootie Tang, but it made <laughs> me laugh, and I'm happy to talk about why I thought it was funny. And so I feel like that's my strength. Whatever other kind of an analytical powers I have, I am excited about popular culture in a way that I think it's fun to communicate. I think there's a tradition of people from Kenneth Tynan to Pauline Kael to Ralph Ellison on jazz that I, I feel like I want to be connected to. And and that same sense of you sort of feeling the adrenaline in the in the discourse, because I think that's what we have here, even as we're talking about this, and and that's I knew how to do that as a writer, and to find the same kind of grammar, if you will, that exists in the world of filmmaking, to to find that and to be exposed to that, and and to have really the advice and encouragement of, of Soderbergh, who I cannot stress enough how much he's in my corner. And there are times I thought I'd run into brick walls. He just calls it, well, just work on it. Oh, it's as simple as that. I mean, it does. it's like writing a piece. You put it down, you walk away for a little bit, and you go back and you say, oh, 
well, this is just no good. I need to start it over again. And so just to have that experience to inform what I was doing let me know that there's a way to communicate the same kind of, I guess, perspective I want to get across in my writing. Well, and it's interesting, too. You know, this movie made me think a lot about you as a critic and as a viewer. Especially. In what way? Well, you know, it, it, in terms of when uh, you talk about how classic films are almost like minefields sometimes if you're a black viewer. You know, you can be watching something like you have a clip from Young and Innocent, I think it is. Or uh, Oh, absolutely. You I'm know, glad you id that. Yes, I did. <laughs> Young and Innocent or Palm Beach Story. You know, you, these movies that are, you know, part of the the canon, if you will, you know, are certainly by directors who are part of the, the canon. And for you as a black viewer, I'm curious, like, where's the line for you as a cinephile or is it a kind of sliding scale in terms of how much you can – enjoy or appreciate these movies. I mean, how do you approach someone like Preston Sturgis, who, on the one hand, clearly a director of merit and skill. On the other hand, clearly a director who had, I mean, that, even for me as a white viewer, that sequence in Palm Beach Story makes it impossible for me to love that movie because it just throws me out of it so hard. Not only that, but it makes you ask questions about this guy who clearly had a discerning eye about dealing with economic gaps. You know, you think about Christmas in July, if you redid that with an all-black cast, it would really be saying something, you know. And, in fact, I thought that watching it, seeing it for the first time, that could easily be a group of black people trying to sort of find purchase into the mainstream and doing it through this, through a jingle, through through advertising. I mean, through this kind of insidious way and they would offer a spotlight but not really any permanence. And I, I chose those filmmakers because there is an accepted wisdom that these are sophisticated storytellers. You know, be it George Stevens or Alfred Hitchcock or Preston Sturgis or Stanley Dunn and, and, and Gene Kelly, that these people bring to bear a certain amused and bemused take on the world, which suggests some reserves of thought about the way things have been. When I remember as a kid seeing Young and Innocent growing up in Detroit, we could get Canadian educational TV on what used to be called broadcast television. And it was... There's a show called Magic Shadows hosted by a guy named Alwi Yost, whose son is Graham Yost. Uh, so you can see where his background comes from. And he would show a movie in five pieces over the course of a week. And then at the end of the week, he would show the entire thing. But he, would, he was showing Young and Innocent. He was talking about how it was the precursor for 39 Steps, which at that point I hadn't seen. Well, I heard about the 39 Steps, so let's, it's perfect I'm seeing this first. And the last episode with the denouement saying, be careful, watch out for this. The killer has a twitch. You've seen the movie, you know, the killer doesn't have a twitch. It's like he's blinking to catch a cat. <laughs> okay, that's a fairly artless piece of nuance, but okay. But then the dolly shot on these this band full of people in blackface. And then I had a friend who just came back from London and said, there's a show in the, that ran in London until the early 70s, the black and white show, that would be characters performing, it'd be people performing musical numbers in blackface until the early 70s in the UK. And so this is Alfred Hitchcock who deals with questions of of resentment and repression and these things that kind of logically sort of strike some accord with people who've been marginalized. And he does this. And with that movie like that, you just kind of go, yeah, I, I don't know. But in the case of The Godfather, and I chose specifically a clip that's less in your face than when Sonny's going on about black people and the numbers. Because I want to be careful, because to your point, that's a case you can really throw people out and, and, and just, just completely throw them out of the movie hearing that. And, and I understand that 
in that case, that Coppola is indicting these people for being like that. But when you hear it for the first time, if you're like a kid, you've been reading about the Godfather, you walk in, you're surprised by Marlon Brando with what looks like, you know, shoe polish in his hair. And then this happens, you're going, oh, oh. So it is a dicey proposition because clearly in that case, he is not trying to make these people heroes. It's the same thing as I see there's, when I saw this sequel to Get Shorty and he's heroic. I go, wait a second. <laughs> There's a pretty neat job done of sort of letting us know what's under that character. Or when at one point, with Delroy Lindo's character saying, "You know, I could see playing this Alan Rocky, that could be Morgan Freeman." He goes, "Morgan Freeman, but he's a color fellow, right?" I mean, so even for somebody like. This guy, there's a reminder of where he comes from. And and the filmmakers, the storytellers in these cases are trying to remind us to let us know that all the glitters is not gold. Unlike, you know, I, I make because I was trying to to your to your question, people will ask me about representation. And I think that's a loaded word. As often as not when you say it, people kind of tend to, oh, what's this going to be? So how do you offer that up in a way that doesn't feel archetypal or or like a trope? So again, getting back to talking about my grandmother and asking myself, what was not being said? Ah, I'm somebody who likes a well-cut suit as anybody. What, and even back to Preston Sturgis, that those movies are often it's not about the celebration of wealth and the questions that, that, that money can answer and pose. So that whole period of screwball comedies, that certainly includes Sturgis. At some point, there's somebody of, of color wearing a bow tie with a serving tray. It's as simple as that. I don't have to like say what representation is and isn't. Just I just offer that up and that does as well as anything else. There's another example I, that sort of runs that runs through the film, not an example, but kind of a theme. A lot of people are talking, Sam Jackson, Suzanne DePass, even Charles Burnett about Westerns. Lawrence Fishburne talks about his father taking him to Westerns. So I choose two Westerns that have racial undercurrents. You know, a doorway from the searchers, a doorway from Nevada Smith. But also, the Westerns, if you're a person like I have family from the South, I would go visit every summer, my grandmother, you knew somebody who had a farm, which is to say you knew somebody who had horses, which is to say you saw black people on horses. The moment you show that in the movie, that means the character has agency. They can literally figure out and control which direction they're going. So that could never be allowed, a person of color. That's why I want to leave that question lingering. And certainly there were black Westerns of that period uh, the 30s and 40s would be, you know, something like a Western and a musical and a murder mystery and a comedy and trying to sort of compact all these things into one film because the filmmaker knew he had to really sort of answer to a lot of audience members. So you wouldn't even get something that had sort of the, the let's say, the languor of, of a Western. But also you wouldn't get, you just got movies trying to do so much. But the idea of showing a black person on a horse, which leads me to, I remember... Golly, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson being interviewed and talking about Boogie Nights and saying, I want to put Don Schill in an outfit because there's something funny to me about a black cowboy. This is somebody who's a student of film, who knows this stuff, and even he is drawn up short by the idea of a black. That's a funny concept to him. That's a, wow. So that's the power of movies, too. It was interesting because your movie, The Black Cowboy Thing, just makes me think of Cleavon Little. And there's so many people in this movie who you point out should have had huge careers or huger than they did. And the Cleveland Little thing is, in a way, the most astonishing to me. Because, yeah, you know, well, I just think that is such a fantastic comic performance. It's a great leading man performance. Like, he just, he checks all the boxes that you want from a hero. He's, it's, it's a movie that 
where he's both making fun of the hero but still delivering the satisfactions that you get from a Western hero in that movie. And it's just amazing to me that nobody ever figured out how to utilize him better after that. But, you know, the other person you talk you talk a little bit about in this movie is Richard Pryor. And he's someone that I've always been mystified by how rarely filmmakers knew what to do with him, you know, how like how rarely his true – talent was utilized. I mean, I think Blue Collar is kind of a rare example where it's, it's, he's incredible in that movie. But why do you suppose, given that in his stand-up, his, his qualities were so obvious, why do you think it was so difficult for filmmakers to figure out how to take advantage of that? And Ed, why did he do so many kind of comedies that were beneath him? Well, you know, what the Balzac say about greed being the purest of motives? And he could make a lot of money doing that. If you're an actor, you want to act. You have aspirations to act. Uh, there's certainly the stories about the making of Blue Collar that basically say it was a series of knife fights. Pryor's gift was improvisation, but how do you harness that? How do you make that work if it's not classic improvisation where there's a goal, but you're just saying something that occurs to you for the character to do? And so because it was such an intensely competitive atmosphere with, with Pryor and Yafrikado and Harvey Keitel, who came in ready to not be upstaged by this guy and not just stand around and smile uh, or laugh, as so many people did. He had to show up ready, rehearsed, prepared, and ready to go to work and go toe-to-toe with these guys. So in addition, I mean, but it's also a Paul, a Paul Schrader movie, which means that the best scene in the movie is the scene of their misery after this night-long debauch. Not the orgy itself, but what they're left with after. If that's not Paul Schrader, I don't know what it is. But it's still, even all that aside, it's a great scene. And and, and Pryor's fear and, and resolve about what to do are combined in that in a way that you are actually watching him in that shot with two of the most powerful actors of, of the 70s. And you're paying attention to him as an actor in a way you often didn't, except when he's in Richard Pryor live in concert, he's playing every single thing. You realize he's got that thing where Often it's not he's not really look, looking the other actor in the eye, and I don't. And that's something I don't know how a director deals with when the actor isn't looking somebody else in the eye. There's not contact, and and I don't know prior well enough to speculate what that is. But I know that what it means is he trusts himself more than anybody else, which is why you can see him taking in the audience. Let me just move away from the microphone as if I'm somehow on stage. But you can see Richard Pryor taking in the audience and respecting the audience in a way you don't often see him doing with actors in movies. But Cleavon Little, that is his performance of such elasticity. He goes from being the foil to the straight man, not only in the same scene, in the same shot. I mean, that is as cagey a piece of work and I think as understated a piece of work as, as I've ever seen in movies. And and it's something that he's his first movie is Cotton Comes to Harlem, so that's a movie you kind of see the exuberance you're talking about and things I'm inspired by as a kid seeing that movie. You could there's this pleasure that radiates from the screen that these actors are in love with the idea of being with other actors. You got Cleavon Little making his first movie working with Helen Williams, who got her start as working with Orson Williams as part of the Mercury Theater, uh, and Red Fox, who just comes in because Ossie knows him. Ossie Davis, the director and, and co-writer of the script, knows him and says, I want you to do this bit for me. And then Norman Lear and his partner, Bud York, can see that and go, we, we bought this British show about this junk dealer. We're thinking about doing it in black. Would you mind coming in and say, we're going to change it from Steptoe and Son to Sanford and Son. I don't want to play a junk dealer. That's okay. Just give me the try and see how it works. 
all these things that are trans, these transformative moments. But Cleavon literally, you, he only has a couple of scenes in the movie. And you can see his agility as an actor. And, and I was watching it as a kid thinking, wow, this guy has a whole world in front of him. I mean, that whole thing when he stages his own kidnapping. And he's making fun of a convention, but not making fun of the character. I mean, you've got to believe that he's playing both these things well. It's a sketch comedy. And you go, oh, well, gosh, he's in this. And I believe that John Hillerman and David Hulson believe him. And this is no small thing when you have, you know, Harvey Keitel basically playing to the back seat at the drive-in. Uh, it's a performance where you're aware of his awareness of where he is, both in this story and and in the conventions of, of, of satire. And there are people who said that because it was Richard Pryor was one of the co-writers and he was slated to do it, but the studio wouldn't insure him. So that wouldn't happen. I just, well, and this takes us back to your question. I don't think Richard Pryor consulted in the same way. No, you're right. Well, and that's, I mean, this is why you're a great critic. You just articulated uh, much better than I could exactly why I like Cleavon Little so much in that movie. And uh, when you, you know, when you were looking at all of these movies again for this documentary, did you find there were certain films or filmmakers that rose considerably in your estimation? Were there people who you maybe always liked, but you saw new things in them, new, appreciated new new things? Or, or were there movies that maybe weren't as great as you remembered, things that you thought were great when you were a kid? Now you looked at it and you said, eh, I don't know. I know. I just thought that the scope of the ambition of Uptight and the audacity of doing a film about a robbery taking place at a moment where the black community was reeling has always struck me as an incredibly powerful thing. One of the things that I've always thought this movie has been about is about wasted opportunity. And, and part of this is that because it took me so long to get a chance to do it, there are people I wanted to talk to and I didn't. But Roscoe Lee Brown, who I knew a little bit, who's in Uptight, who's in Uptown Saturday Night, who's in Liberation L.B. Jones. He's in all these movies doing something very different. Why didn't I get a chance to talk to him? But it gave me more of an appreciation of what it is he did and how quicksilver he was as a talent and that he didn't get his due to the extent that he should have. He could go from comedy to drama, had this kind of astonishing elegance as an actor, but also this real sense of, these characters always had this pained sense of self-awareness. And just seeing him glimpsed in all these I mean we had a whole section uh, he has this incredible kind of soliloquy that he does in Uptight and so I just found myself in watching this I just was re-experiencing a kind of heartbreak being reminded of how, clo how close Rupert Cross came to the brass ring that I have always heard and tell me if you agree in Jack Nicholson that kind of mirthless chuckle and that playful sneer that snarl in his voice that doesn't sound like New Jersey. It sounds like he's doing Rupert Cross to me. I've always thought there's been part of him that subsumed Cross as an actor. And when I met Bob Town, Robert Town for the first time, I asked him about that. And he goes, it's funny you should mention that because we were all in acting classes together in the 50s. And Rupert Cross was kind of this god who all the women loved and no guy could be jealous of because nobody could be what Rupert was. And so we watched him. And his Jack, who he said is is a real working class Marxist intellectual, would always be miserable because he said, you know, Rupert's not ever going to go anywhere or have the kind of success that he should. So I'm actually getting a little more talking about this. When they were constructing the last detail, they were doing this so that these guys would be the leads. And how Ashby actually sat and waited with bated breath, hoping that Cross would turn around, and he didn't. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, those are the kinds of things that make me, I mean, I'm glad I got a chance to make this movie now, even though it's outlived some people. But there are other people, I've, at this appreciation, um, sorry, I wasn't able to get into the movie, and and I'll, I'll tell you an interesting, what I thought was an interesting tag for it. Um, the filmmaker Larry Cohen, who when I met 20 years ago, actually worked on another documentary um, about black film, but which I tried to pitch, but the, the producers, the company went, well, you know what? We like your idea, but this is white British guy wants to do it, so we'll let him make it instead. So I got to be the interviewer. That way I got to meet Larry Cohen, and I said to him, why is it that in Black Caesar, the lead character dies, but there's a sequel? And he said, where did you see it? I said, well, Detroit, where I grew up, because I was a kid. He goes, okay. So New York is playing. First show, 42nd Street, and it's playing like gangbusters. It's going to blow the top off the roof. And I realized the audience is starting to turn because he's been shot. And it's supposed to evoke the end of Little Caesar where he dies almost going home. He said, the audience really going south. There's only one thing I can do. And I said, what's that? I ran up to the booth, got a pair of scissors and cut the last minute off the movie, <laughs> ran from 42nd Street to 110th Street to every theater, going to the booth, cutting the last minute off, jumped on a plane to LA, came out here and did the same thing. I said, so the rest of the country didn't matter. He goes, well, we got a sequel out of it. <laughs> but we're doing the sequel, and the original score is written and performed by James Brown. The second score, James Brown always gave you a ton of stuff. The issue was with music editing. Every cue James Brown wrote was six minutes long. With the four seconds of music, there's a six-minute cue. So you had to go through all this editing, so it ends up costing another like $15,000 or so. Music editing, which infuriates Sam Arkoff around the studio. Says, that man is never, he cost me $15,000. And he starts laying the money on the table. And Larry Cohen says, why do you have $15,000 in your pocket? Doesn't matter. He's never working here again. So Black Caesar comes out, despite the lead character dying. It's a success and basically begs for a sequel. And so Larry Cohen gets a call from James Brown's manager. who says, Mr. Cohen, the man is ready to go back to work. And Larry Cohen says, let me call you back. Calls up Sam Marco, picks up a mid ran. This man cost me $15,000. He said, I can hear the money slamming on his table, on his desk, over the phone. I hang up, I call back James Brown's manager. I say, I would love to have Mr. Brown back, but we had some budgetary issues with the music editing. I could only see him coming back here if you're willing to do this on spec. And his manager goes, oh, I see. What does that mean? Okay. That means you have to do this speculatively. Oh, I see. What does that mean? Aha, that means you have to speculate and gamble on the studio paying for the score and do it for free. And the manager goes, oh, I see. Let me call you back in five minutes. Calls back four minutes and 30 seconds later. Mr. Cohen, the man accepts your challenge. James Brown writes the score, which Larry's anxious about the movie because they only have Fred Williamson for, I think, like six days of a 20-day shoot. He's making another movie. Yes, he's sneaking from the other set to do the sequel. This, this music is going to save the movie. And so Larry's excited, grabs the tapes, drives over to American International, sits and has to wait to go into Sam Markoff's office. Yes, he's about to put the tapes up on the player. Markoff, so what is this again? Oh, Sam, this is James Brown. James Brown, he cost me $15,000. This is what he cost me. He's never working in the studio again. So... Dejected, Larry takes down the tapes, drives home, calls up James Brown's manager, says, Mr. Cohen, the man is just glad you were in his corner. They send a messenger, which strikes Larry's eye because James Brown doesn't usually spend that kind of money. Pick the tapes. There are a few changes made. The score is released as the payback. It's James Brown's biggest record 
ever. And when I told the story to uh, Quentin Tarantino, he goes, oh, my God. And he put that song in Django because of the story and was insistent that story be in the movie. I said, but at a certain point, you're putting a little bit too much of a spotlight on Black Caesar. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Black Caesar should be, not that I'm I'm not a, a fan, I don't think it deserves the same kind of attention as symbiocycotaxi plasm <laughs> or, or killer sheep. It gave me more respect for what Larry's doing. But I really, in getting the chance to sort of play it theatrically and see it at a few festivals, there are things that really strike me about watching it. It's always watching that sequence in Superfly, which didn't get its due as a piece of guerrilla filmmaking. Who knows what these figures are? But, you know, the DP, Jim Sinner, really told me that they shot it. This doesn't include, like, poster or anything. They shot Superfly for $75,000 on 16. And that chase sequence, as you know, he talked about, you can tell it's one take because you see the movie, he never wears that suit again. It's a suede suit that he like vaults a five foot fence and leaps onto fire escape. And you can see his hands shaking from the adrenaline as he's pulling himself up and go, oh my God, that's not a stunt man. That's the star of the movie doing all that. When I asked Jim Senior, he goes, oh, what happened to that suit? He goes, well, we trashed that suit, and we borrowed it, so I pity the poor PA who had to return it to whomever we borrowed it from. But for me, movies, not only full of these moments like that, but I can't help but have regrets about things I wasn't able to get in. I had a section I tried to craft. It just didn't work for time about Austin Stoker and, and John Carpenter. I think Assault on Precinct 13 starts him always having a black character who's a mirror of the hero, be it for heroic effect or or as kind of a deuteragonist in the case of, uh, of, of Escape from New York and, 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 and The Thing, but also in They Live, and that starts with the Saul on, on Precinct 13. That's, there's this disappointment. It's just that there were multitudes that I wasn't able to get into it. Yeah, I mean, that was something I was wondering about was how, where you even make those kinds of choices with the abundance of material you have. And, and honestly, I'll tell you, the movie could have gone on another hour as far as I was concerned. I mean, Thank I you. was just, uh, just absolutely... Loving it. And and another thing I loved about it, aside from your enthusiasm and the clips, I also, you know, I thought the interviews were really well chosen. Your your subjects were chosen. And, um, you know, there's a lot of great stories that you get from these people. But I'm curious from a filmmaking point of view, this may be kind of a strange question, but I'm just curious what your philosophy was in terms of how you wanted to shoot those interviews. Like how many cameras do you use? Do you feel like there's a an ideal position for a camera to be to shoot an interview with someone? I think it depends on the way the person inhabits the frame. One thing I try to be aware of is in terms of casting the interview subjects, people who look like they be- they belonged on screen will still have a lot of the same kind of charisma. I mean, dear God, you're watching Harry Belafonte. He should still be starring in movies. Or, or you see Margaret Avery, who got her to start doing those movies and later went on to be nominated for an Oscar for The Color Purple. And she's still got that, that same kind of innocent, unaffected quality to her voice. You can just close your eyes and listen to her speak and be transported by the way she tells the story. And so that was one thing I wanted. And then also, for the most part, people who had been in one way or another had been in these movies worked in this period. So Sam Jackson may seem kind of anomalous. The fact is that he got to start working in movies in 1971. Fishburne starts as a kid doing Cornbread, Earl and Me. Um, Whoopi Goldberg is a person who wasn't one of their contemporaries, but she knew as much about those movies as anybody, was able to sort of talk about that from the experience of working in movies from the 80s till now. And Zendaya, because she represents the 21st century and how in some ways things haven't changed. When she says, and I was really struck by this because it shows how thoughtful she is. And it's, it's not just 
an obsession about herself. She said, you just at some point want to see yourself and kids playing on the screen or in a science fiction fantasy film. You know, yeah, that's still an issue. I wasn't worried that in 10 years from now that things would change that much. My fears are going to be more or less the same. I know in five years, it's not going to be that much difference because since we started shooting this film three years ago, <laughs> what's really changed? And so I was happy to have these people. And in terms of philosophy, it was all about the way they, they took up the frame. And I also want to, of course, certain people like shooting Sheila Frazier. I knew we could go in close because she's an actor, so she knows how to speak. But I wanted to give Charles Burnett the whole frame. We shot him at the Cinerama Dome. I also want to make sure we shot these in movies. And there's so many of these things that are about movies. You see somebody in a the movie theater, but it could just be a screening room. I want to make sure you got the entirety of the room that you could see the light on in the projection booth, that you knew you were seeing not just somebody sitting in, in seats, but this was a movie theater and an old school movie palace. We shot Zendaya, the third floor of Los Angeles theater. And it's, I mean, she pops out. She's like, she's an IMAX up there. She's a really part of the lineage of movie goddesses, are you saying? And she belongs up there in a place like that I hope that at some point some movie of hers plays in that theater and she can watch it from that vantage point. So it was too about also reminding people that in a lot of ways, and this really fell into place for me when my editor Doyle found that clip of Dr. King talking about being so pushed out of the center of the frame, forgive me for that metaphor, that if you're a person of color growing up in the 30s and 40s, you saw black, you saw movies on the third and fourth run so who knows what kind of shape they were in at some place that wasn't even a movie theater. So I wanted to offer this idea that for me, especially the way Burnett, Charles Burnett talks and uses his hands, that he's talking about a place that's as much of a temple as any church. And these old school grand movie palaces were that. I guess to wrap things up, you know, the closest I can think of in recent years, like it's not that recent anymore, but to to the period you're talking about here is, you know, the early 90s kind of had a brief explosion of black movies where you had Singleton, Spike Lee, you had Menace to Society, you had Deep Cover, you had like a lot of black films coming out. Um, and, and I guess I'm curious uh, how you see those periods as comparable or if you don't because you're kind of smirking at me. Like, I'm not <laughs> smirking at you. If I was smirking, I would turn away and cover my face like I were pretending to cough. But, I, but you, you, you offer something I've given a lot of thought to, which I feel like every decade this happens. In the 80s, there's She's Gotta Have It, and then there's Hollywood Shuffle, two movies that change the narrative about filmmaking, but actually pick up on the tradition of Melvin Van Peebles and Oscar Michaud about really having to seize the means of production, otherwise you're never going to get it. But making that seizing of the means of production the story rather than being the story of making a black film because then nobody cares. Or it gets sort of shunted off to the same kind of, oh, isn't that nice, the patronizing story about black film. So you had to make yourself kind of a cultural revolutionary uh, to get covered. That's what those movies do. And then the 90s is the same thing. That happens again in the, the early 90s, that group you, that you were talking about. At one point, there were a bunch of them on the cover of the New York Times Sunday Magazine. That just made me think, oh, boy, this is over. <laughs> because <laughs> having worked the New York Times, I know sometimes they're not exactly first to the party. <laughs> but it's every decade, this question of black films are back. Well, they didn't go anywhere. No, no, black films are back. They didn't go anywhere. No, no, black films are back. Where did they go? I think... It's not that they go away. It's just that if they don't lend themselves to that specific pocket of coverage, then nobody knows how to write about them. 
and if it's binary, either black films are back or they're not. Because I've said this, uh, close on this, you know, because I think it's important. Black film is a genre. It doesn't matter if it's a black Western, it's a black film first. It doesn't matter if it's a black romantic comedy, it's a black film. It doesn't matter if it's a low budget, independent piece of art that changes the way people make movies and is stolen from for decades to come, like Killer of Sheep. It's a black movie. There isn't that kind of <laughs> single label applied to any other kind of filmmaking like that. Other films get some space and breadth. So the other side of that becomes, too, that when black, a black film fails, there tends to be this, you know, this, this narrowing of thought where they're all pulled down together. And that's the case I want to make with The Wiz, because I say that. It doesn't matter they got bad reviews because most of the films that were hits, I mean, nobody's going to go through and pull out the New York Times review of Superfly and make it part of the quote ad because that's not going to help it. But if that movie had been a hit, it would have been forgiven for whatever its, its excess is. But it wasn't, so it becomes a way of saying, we don't know how to deal with this, so let's just kind of say that black people don't, because black movies don't travel overseas, which isn't true, or that, uh, you know, Black people don't want to see themselves in historical dramas, which isn't true, but it's the kind of thing you can say and and rationalize your withdrawal from that part of the market just because you don't get it. And you're not seeing how incremental each of these successes kept the movie business alive. I have to say, I mean, I just thought this was a terrific movie, and I'm so glad you made it for all the reasons you're saying. I'm glad if, you know, especially that, you know, I know you say you missed a lot of people. You made it, it was too late for some people to see it or be included, but, you know, you still got the Billy Dee Williams interview, I just I just love because I'm such a Billy Dee Williams fan. I mean, I recently was revisiting old episodes of Dynasty that he was on. <laughs> and he's incredible. I mean, you know, the guy just is so handsome and charismatic. I mean, I love the part where he's talking to you and he says, you know, he wanted to be Billy Dee Williams when he saw himself in those movies, when he saw himself in Lady Sings the Blues. I mean, it's just, and I, but I just think there's so many people in this that you celebrate. And I think your passion as a critic, it comes through so much in this movie and it's it's so infectious. And I guess- you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to ask you one last question, which sure. is for people listening to this, you know, for people who are coming to these movies cold, I mean, what are, what are a few movies that you think, what are, the, what are the gateway drugs? What are the best starting points for people for this era of filmmaking? I mean, is it Cotton Comes to Harlem? Is it Superfly? Is it Sweetback? What, what, do you, what do you start people with? I think you can't go wrong with any of the movies with Curtis Mayfield scores because it's the same the movie. A 20-album output over 10 years, five of them are scores, four of them are parts of the R&B pantheon between Sparkle and Let's Do It Again and Claudine and Superfly. I mean, these are astonishing moments. So you could just use those four movies, just going from the Curtis Mayfield scores of black films at that time and go, wow, okay. And his, by the way, his fifth score was this movie Short Eyes, which is an adaptation of the Miguel Pinero play, which he's in with Freddie Fender. The, uh, so it's it's really peculiar. But he also helped to raise the money to get that movie made. He believed in it so much. While he, cause so he did that while he's like making another record, you know, two records a year. So I, I would say those, but then also, because that gives you Claudine, that gives you Sparkle, that gives you Let's Do It Again, that gives you Superfly. You know, the four directions. I mean, and each of those speak in very different ways. Superfly being independently made, independently financed, movie that ends up becoming a defining part of this genre that's just sort of constructed to, to diminish black film. Then let's do it again, being part of the resurrection of Sidney Poitier, 
who resurrected himself, by the way. Is there such a term as self-resurrection? I don't know. Let's pretend there is one. <laughs> then there's Sparkle, which is the proto-dream girls, which Joel Schumacher writes so he can direct it himself because he's worked with Woody Allen as a costume designer. And everybody who knows movies knows that Joel Schumacher should be making movies. So he writes one to craft for himself to make. Just using, if I've got to do that quickly, that's, I can't think of four, more different movies that are basically sort of these fulfillments of a single talent who was making himself a part of the production rather than overwhelming the production. You know, along the lines of what Steven Soderbergh asked you about what you're doing with your career, uh, are you planning on making another film now? Or uh, what do you I'm planning? I didn't plan on making this one. <laughs> um, I'm just taking this, I'm not kidding, a day at a time and just trying to get the movie out there and talk about it before it's overwhelmed by the onslaught that will be Wakanda forever because there's room for only one black movie. <laughs> Guess what it's going to be? <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Maybe during Christmas time, and people have seen it for 10 or 12 times already, they'll go, maybe they'll think, well, let's see that movie that kind of talks about where it came from. <laughs> uh, so that's, my hope is just to get this thing some attention. And I, I can't thank you enough for this. this. These have been terrific questions that really made me think about what exactly it was I was doing. Well, it's been great to have you, and I've, you know, stolen everything I know about interviewing from you. So uh, thanks for being here, Elvis. You can do much better than that. Trust <laughs> me.